Hi, everybody. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you've come here via YouTube and want to know more about we do uh, what we do, it's pretty easy. Just head on over to officehours.global. That's kind of our primary web portal. For more information and links about the show, uh, note on the bottom of this, there is a QR code that will be appearing momentarily. And the QR code is your easy way in. If you simply shoot that with your phone or some other device that's QR code friendly, it will take you to the question system. And uh, even if you don't have something you can shoot it with, there's a, a little bit of type up at the very top of that that shows you askofficehours.global. And you can type that at any web browser and it'll get you here as well. Those questions join the questions that come from our standard Mukana system, which is a little more complicated to find, but the advantage of that system is that it allows you to vote on the questions that come in. This entire show is driven by your questions. So literally, if you want to be uh, the most active in terms of participating and if you want to help accelerate getting to certain questions in the queue, Please become a part of the back-end system and uh, join us every day here on Office Hours as we deal with people's questions. So that's what's happening uh, today. In our second hour, we're going to be talking about company culture. We've been doing business kind of related topics on Mondays, and we've got a great panel here to talk about what you should think about, uh, particularly if you're starting out your career or if you've been there for a long time. We'll talk about all the aspects of corporate culture, comp uh, company culture, big and small companies, things that you can maybe not understand when you're kind of new in the game, but that are really important if you want to continue to build your uh, skill set in terms of working your way up a corporate ladder or something like that. So that's something that we'll be talking about in our second hour. Uh, that's really what's going on. But for right now, Jason, what's our first question for the day? First question is directed directly at me. Mr. Bache, do you have any birthday wisdom to share today? And I'll just answer that straight away. No matter no matter who you are, figure out who you are and um, figure out what you love and pursue it at all costs. And I am going to comment hooray and oh dear. I'm saying hooray because we're happy to celebrate Jason's birthday. I'm going to say oh dear because those of you who have been watching Office Hours for any length of time knows that we have a tradition here. And it is a wonderfully horrible tradition of singing happy birthday to our friends when they are on the show live on their birthday. Now... I don't know of anybody, I don't know most of the singing talent levels of the people in the panel. I know mine on a scale of 1 to 10 is somewhere about a negative 15. So but we are going to sing happy birthday to Jason now. My rules for this, Alex tends to want to slow things down and he's doing it almost like a Gregorian chant. I like to keep the pace up because frankly, I don't want the misery of people having to listen to me to last any longer than is humanly necessary. So if we are ready, I'm going to count it off and go... Three, two, one. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Jason. Happy birthday to you. And many more. That's about as much as we're going to put you through. Happy birthday, Jason. So great to have you here on your birthday. Thank now you. that we've done that and it's part of the history of the show forever, let's move on to our first question. Sorry, Jason. Very good. Uh, Douglas Carmichael writes in with the Sphere posting a $98.4 million loss. Do you think a cost-cutting CEO and board would close it quickly or do they know uh, where too far into it? Let's start with CJ here. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit on the show yesterday. Just doing some quick back of the napkin math, we figured, yes, they've got a, uh, they've shown a, 
a little bit of a loss, but the long-term potential once they have more acts being booked into the sphere and once they uh, renegotiate contracts with artists that aren't taking 75% of the ticket, maybe that's going to help them with their uh, <laughs> with their dollars. The other thing that was an interesting point is when you think about the sphere and the fact that it is dominated by that screen, there's not a lot of load-in, load-out that's going to go on there. Uh, it's not like they're building a stage. So unlike some other venues where you could stack or where you're going to have a single artist in residency, you could actually stack multiple residencies on different days of the week. And then maybe even uh, instead of it being the same artist every night, you could have an artist that shows up once or twice a month. And the ability to be that flexible, I think, puts them in the other direction. Courtney, what do you think? Yeah, I'm not sure where you got your numbers. I found a uh, a listing that says that uh, the Sphere Corporation, which includes a lot of things, but but uh, the Sphere being one of them, and you know a lot of the offset uh, because of the construction happening during COVID, and there was a lot of slowdowns that increased the cost of that building uh, to balloon over a billion dollars. But it says here the Sphere Corporation uh, is expected to generate $1.1 billion in revenue for the next fiscal year with Sphere online and operating profit of $57 million, so profit $57 million, according to estimates from Standards & Poor's Global Market Intelligence. So I think they're looking ahead to some profits coming in. Uh, the Sphere itself may be in, in a losing territory until they pay off a lot of those uh, extra costs of the construction, but... You know, the, the company is not about to fold. John Snyder, what do you think? I've read one article about the finance of the sphere, and it pulled out the sphere from the rest of um, the company's revenue and basically said there was $8 million revenue the first quarter. That could just be because it was open a, a week into the quarter or something like that. I wouldn't worry too much about it. These people know what they're doing. They're planning this long term out. They have a huge asset on their hands as far as um, the building itself. And a cost-cutting CEO is not going to look at one week or one month or three months of revenue and say, oh, that's it, pull the plug, sell the building. Um, that's just not how finance works. The question is what was anticipated from a finance perspective and how well are they performing to what was anticipated? I don't know why, but I'm thinking back to Amazon's early days. How much money did they lose in the first 10 years? They were just entirely in the red forever. But people believed in that concept, and then look at them now. They're making money hand over fist. So sometimes people who are very sophisticated at business understand you're going to have years of losses before you turn it around. But if it's a facility that's going to last for a long, long time, then over the fullness of time, maybe that all changes. Let's get to our next question. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida writes in, Nice Black Friday production gear sale list, and he has a link from News Shooter. Ooh, didn't anybody have a chance to pull this up and see uh, what's going on there? It's interesting to me. I've I've really gone two different directions in my mind about used gear. Sometimes you get really good deals. It has been well taken care of. And sometimes you, it's like, whoa, no wonder this person sold that off into the used market. There's something fundamentally not right about it. So I always feel like it's a little bit of a risk. If I can get it at a serious deal, I will sometimes consider it. But... I also see a lot of people who put their precious stuff up and they want 90% of retail, even though it's a year old. And that's just unreasonable in my mind. CJ, what do you think? Looking at the link, they it looks like mostly um, B&H links. So they've got, uh, it's mostly big camera bodies. So if you're in the market for a, for a red Komodo or a 
Blackmagic 6K G2 or something fancy like that. Or, I think my favorite here, the O'Connor tripod is a uh, savings of 4900 bucks off of uh, 25000 So, uh, But yeah, check it out. It looks like there are some good deals, but you could also alternatively just go to B&H because that seems to be where most of the deals are from. Yeah, and you know, and B&H has a solid reputation. They've been in the business forever, so that probably would give me a little more, at least somebody backing it up so you're not buying it off a Craigslist in a shady, I'll meet you on the corner of Fifth and Ash and uh, bring cash kind of deal. Um, hopefully, if you're looking for something, hopefully it'll be there for you and you'll you'll have a great deal. Let's go to the next question. Uh, Alan Scott in Fredericton, Canada writes in, we have many local recordings of old Zoom meetings. What are our options to get transcripts of them? That is, well, there are more chances now than there have ever been before because there's so many places like Descript and other, and, and I could go down a list of 15 different places that are now taking audio files and doing text, uh, voice to text translations, um, uh, all of them are are pretty good. I mean, the, the algorithms for extracting text from speech have gotten better and better. I will say uh, they're all – if, even if they're 99.9% accurate, that's uh, a word every too many for me. And, and I like using them. It's a great start, but it never does a completely accurate translation. And so that means that a human being has to look through whatever this is and, and get it entirely right if that's your goal. Jason, what do you think? Yeah, 99% accurate means it's going to miss one or two words per printed page, assuming 500 pages or 500 words per page. That's uh, that's not ideal. Um, I've had good luck with otter.ai, but I'm sure that there are other options out there. CJ? I'll second what Jason said. I was just going to mention uh, that I've also had some good experiences with Otter AI. And one thing that it does that I don't think is unique to Otter, but that I would recommend looking for in any of the transcript tools that you're using is try, try and find one to make sure that it has um, voice to text. Or, I'm sorry, not voice to text, but speaker detection. That way you, it can identify uh, who is speaking and then start to be able to search by speaker. Those tools are really, really nice. I will say that for the for the best accuracy, hopefully whoever is presenting that you're using the audio from was mic'd correctly, doesn't have a lot of external noise, and you get into circumstances where two or three people are talking in a meeting, they all kind of get into it. Those situations are very high to AI, for, uh, very difficult for AI to break out and turn into a readable transcript. So the kind of gig that you're trying to get this transcript out of can matter a lot. Courtney, you had some thoughts? Well, you could just open a uh, YouTube account, upload them to YouTube and turn on the subtitles feature and uh, that will give you the uh, transcription file. How can uh, you scrape that, that text out of that though? Isn't, is there I a think way? Uh, Alex knows that there is an, a file that is generated that has the uh, text in it. Uh, and then you can submit that file for translation into other languages, so it must be accessible. Um, so I'm sure if you look online for the tools to do that, you could probably find them to strip the uh, transcription, to, to strip the subtitles file out of a uh, YouTube video. 
Yeah, I use Simon Says because I'm a Final Cut editor. I think I have friends who use Whipster because they're on uh, Premiere Pro and other things. Most of them now have some kind of text translation built in. I do find that's incredibly useful because you stay inside your software. You can literally export the sound file from your desktop without leaving your NLE. You can then, five minutes later, download the, their translation. And as was just mentioned by Courtney, there's uh, language translation is easy. They've got probably 50 languages. And you can say, give me the subtitles in English, German, and Swahili for all I know. Hindi, uh, yes. Yeah. They have a, a surprising number of them. Again, for me, the problem is... Did it get it right or did it get it wrong? And if I don't have somebody who speaks those three languages and can read it fluently and mark it up and say, oh, no, no, they got that wrong. They shouldn't have used that term. They should have used this term because that doesn't make any sense. You're kind of working a little blind. So I, it's just personal. I never work with auto translation without a human being who can vet that translation afterwards, particularly in a corporate circumstance where a word can really mess things up. Let's go to the next question. Rian Smith in Trinidad, West Indies, writes in, Hi, I want to create on-screen graphics for my ATEM Extreme using overlays.uno. I have noted videos with folks using key and fill methods. Is there a simpler method to get the graphics into the ATEM via one HDMI from an RPI, for example? Boy, um, Rian, let me think about that for a second. You know, the real people that you want to talk to about this, first of all, uh, Tuomo, our friend from SPX Graphics, lives and works in this kind of pull things out and put them on the screen um, and get them into ATEM. We've talked about it a lot, but I don't do a lot of that. Um, I just use the built-in tools there. So if nobody else on the panel has a more sophisticated process of automating graphics into an ATEM, you know, maybe it's just as easy as if they're being created on black or something like that, use your NLE and do a Luma key. I've done that a lot. And actually, it's getting more and more sophisticated as time goes on, and I find it working better and better. Half the time, that's all I have to do. I don't even bother with key and fill. I just do a Luma key on, you know, white text against a black background or vice versa. And it usually does a pretty decent job. It's getting better anyway. It used to be really complicated to do that in the old days. A lot easier now. Let's go to the next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado writes in, In anticipation of iOS 17.2 and spatial photos, would you recommend neutral density filters to have better quality spatial images? Courtney. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend them. <laughs> because if you think about it for a second, spatial photos... Uh, you want to have a, a good depth of field, not a shallow depth of field. And by putting a neutral density filter on, you're going to uh, have it open up that uh, uh, aperture even wider and give you a narrower depth of field. Uh, so to see the spatial, the depth uh, and placement and use the and have the algorithms that take artificially generated, uh, images and place them in that field of vision. It then has to calculate, if it's a narrow depth of field, it has to calculate the amount of blur that it has to apply. It makes it much more difficult. You probably want to keep it uh, with a wide angle lens with a broader depth of field. And I would only use neutral density if you run into a situation where there's so much light, it just can't handle it. Jason? 
My primary concern with the neutral density filter would actually have to do with the the fact that a lot of the magic of the iPhone when taking spatial photography has to do with the LiDAR sensor. And if you block the LiDAR sensor, you're going to have a lot more problems than than flat mid-tone contrast. Um, you're not going to have any depth data. And that The iPhone's relying on that. Yeah, I agree with that. I think um, I, there may be some people who come out with unusual filters that block the two cameras that are doing the depth information, but don't block the LiDAR sensor because of exactly what Jason said. That would kind of defeat the purpose of this. I will say that in terms of computational photography, there's been so much money spent around the world, not just at Apple, but in, in lots of other companies too, to try to get this nailed. Uh, phones just continue to come on in terms of their sophistication as image grabbing and uh, editing and everything else tools that they're throwing all the money and all the engineering they can at it. Because if literally, if a brand comes out with a camera that steps up, that will move purchasers to that phone system rather than what they're in because people are very passionate about the photography coming out of phones these days. So fingers crossed and hopefully that took care and gave you some ideas, Jack. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida writes in, thoughts on the Hugo Spaces virtual events platform that uses Unreal and he has the link hugo.io. I have not looked at it. I don't know if anybody else on the panel has gone there either. We've, we're seeing a spate of virtual events platforms coming out. I think it doesn't take a genius to understand that ever since COVID hit, people were more and more event uh, interested in doing what we do here every day, which is virtual kind of collaborative events from contributors all over the world. Um, I don't know specifically. I mean, if it uses Unreal, I will say that my experiences with Unreal have been both amazing and terrible. Um we did a whole series uh, with uh, Drexel University's Next Justician on Unreal Engine starting back maybe a year ago. And Nick came on a lot and explained the back end of Unreal and how everything works. We did labs where we uh, literally created virtual avatars, avatars of ourselves. I was both incredibly impressed and also incredibly frustrated back in those days. Now, I know it's come a long way since then. But the amount of effort that takes in, you have to put into building a realistic artificial world, and more important, anything even vaguely resembling realistic characters in Unreal. It can be done, and the people who are very sophisticated do it beautifully these days. But boy, that was a lot of work. And I was just getting a a simple little avatar to look anything like me turned out to be way beyond my comprehension. So... I've always I keep thinking of Unreal back in those year two years ago kind of spaces where it's really great, but it's also really complex and has some pretty steep requirements in terms of great hardware. Uh, their internal software works well if everything's working great, but it does take some time. So this my my suggestion is it's going to be a massive time sink. If you want to play in the Unreal world and that's what you think your career goals are. Dive in now and spend as much time thinking about it as possible because it's not easy, but it's great for the people who really know how to do it. And there'll be nothing but more, I think, present as we go on. Courtney, do you have a thought? I haven't had really much of a chance to analyze, uh, you know, this stuff. Uh, it, what it looks like is uh, I, I don't know whether they have a green screen stage to put you on these virtual sets, which combine basically Zoom clients or some other type of conferencing clients and put them 
into that virtual typeset. Uh, it looks like that's what they're doing so that the person here, the zero presenter, would be standing on a green screen stage somewhere and it's generating a, a virtual set that it's putting you in and piping all of your participants into the uh, virtual wall behind you, et cetera. Not sure how much, what they uh, base it on. And let's see, you'd have to, I'd have to read their whole, uh, whole business proposition there to see how much they charge, whether it uses a custom facility or you can use your own facility to do the camera tracking and the, all of the rest of the stuff that's required to, you know, make all that virtual scenery stick in real time. But, um, and I don't know what it's priced at, but they're using uh, NVIDIA, uh, AWS and Unreal Engine. So. Yeah, those are their partners. Actually, a good place to start would be, I think, two weeks ago on Friday, Andy Carluccio and Jonathan Kokaiko and, and uh, Mr. Cocatella were all here um, and explained the back end of Zoomtopia for this year. So if you go to Office Hours, the archive of our things and just type in Zoomtopia, you will get that show. You can learn a lot about what was required to pull that off, and it'll give you kind of a good overview. Andy and, and the rest of them really explained a lot about what they had to do to make that happen. So great primer on virtual events in Unreal Engine. Let's go to the next question. Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida, used the QR code to ask trauma caused by the Mac Store version of DaVinci Resolve diagnosed perfectly yesterday by CJ, Alex, and Alexander. Now, do's and don'ts to preserve the database project's preferences. Can I temporarily have them both installed? And that comes off the QR code system here. So, CJ, we I would this? be I'd be careful about uh, having them both installed because if for whatever reason they write uh, or they think they're writing to the same preferences file, you could have some conflicts while they are um, overlapping. Uh, so, I think best bet would be uninstall the Mac App Store version first. And then before you open up the new one, I would go into your preferences folder uh, and they're in your direct, if, I'm assuming, yeah, you're on a Mac, it's a Mac app store. So uh, the, your user's library preferences, get the com.blackmagicdesign.davinciresolve.plist file. That's going to have all of your settings as they currently exist uh, for that program. If you back that up first, once you install the new one, you can try and put that back in there to see if it's going to bring over some of your settings. For your individual projects, you can select projects within DaVinci Resolve and uh, either export them individually or choose the export command down here to make a backup of the projects. One of the big things that uh, is a, if you do a lot of keyboard customization within DaVinci Resolve, that's another thing where you can go to the little ellipsis menu and you can export your presets for the individual as uh, customizations you've made on your keyboard. The absolute, absolute easy way to do this, foolproof, to make sure that you're not um, absolutely uh, going crazy, is before you uninstall the Mac App Store version, go through every single preference pane and just take a screenshot of it, and that'll make sure that you've got a backup of what your settings are right this second. Because it's one of those things, it's like the what Chris does with Soundesk and LoundLab, you put all of this work on on the front end so that you don't have to think about it anymore. So get a record. Uh, such good advice. I can't tell you the number of times doing exactly what CJ suggests, which is I'm in uncharted territory. Let me just do a screen cap here and make sure I remember what I chose when I was there has saved my rear end. So really good advice there. By the way, 
it is a reasonably quiet day today, which means your questions are more important than ever, and it's a perfect day to get them in. So if you have anything you're interested in, anything about virtual production, anything about video over IP stuff, anything about sound or lighting or anything like that, if you've run into questions, today is the perfect day to get them answered. So bring them in here, and our panel will happily take a shot at them. Let's go to the next question. Next question was submitted via the QR code and Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Are there any lessons to apply to other media assets from the use of generative and multimodal AI in sports media management, which is predicted to add over 19 billion in value to data assets by 2030? Oh, that comes out of TV technology. A publication has been there for a long time. John Snyder, what say you? I think the primary lesson to learn is that um, every CEO and boardroom is asking about AI and every vendor is trying to find a way to say, now with AI in it, um, we're riding high in Gardner's hype cycle when it comes to AI-infused services. Um, when, in this article, it says there's a $19 billion valuation. Both the article and the research that it cites don't really describe how it is other than they're saying things like, well, Amazon uses it and it's really neat. Um, the big the big function that people are actually using these tools for now is real-time translation um, and then magic wand stuff, it seems like, for the rest of it. I'm waiting to drive by a roadside sign that says, tacos, now with artificial intelligence, because you're right, everybody is trying to jump on that bandwagon. Let's get to the next question. Using the QR code, uh, Zach Jeffries in Spokane, Washington writes in, at large events, what is the best method for ingesting many cam ops recordings, SD, SSD, CFX, etc., throughout the day? PC Mac Mini attached to a RAID that syncs to a master NAS. Dumps could be between 128 gig and a terabyte each. Automation preferred as it is run by volunteers. Boy, you're asking for a good little bit. Another QR code question here. Chris Fenwick, do you want to parse this out for us? Yeah, Zach, um, I would hi, hi mom. I would highly recommend that if you're going to and if you need to use a volunteer, that it's a highly trained volunteer. This is a super critical part of a production that you that is so easy, so easy to screw up to the point where uh, you you're completely left high and dry. As a matter of fact, uh, there are um, I don't know if you know this. There are Hollywood insurance companies that won't give you production completion bonds unless you use certain software to transfer your your data around. It's 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 kind of crazy. I mean, I, I just think, you know, it's a folder full of stuff. You copy it from here to there. And yet it can be done so poorly that a movie doesn't get made. So um, that would be my one, my one recommendation is that person has to be highly trained, if not a paid professional. Um, also, I'm very leery of automated things. I know a lot of people feel very comfortable with it. I just don't. But I think the most important thing is that you have a, like, you need to map it out in advance. You need to make a document. It needs to be posted at every computer. And everybody who is going to touch this has to understand it. But you need to have a really um, well-thought-out naming convention. Everybody, like you, probably want to know what day the data came in, and probably what hour it came in. I would want to know what camera it came from, and I would want to know what card from that camera it was. So, like, 
you know, camera A1, A2, A12, A14, whatever. And that'll give you a lot of hints as you're um, deciphering things later. Um, so be really careful about that. And the card, if the cards don't get mixed up, if a camera guy doesn't come back and say, well, here's my first three cards and dump them on you and you don't know which one is A1, A2, and A3, it gives you a good map of what happened throughout the day and, and what order things happened. In terms of the actual hardware, yeah, what you're saying sounds good. Um, I have done a very similar to this on um, what we call happy faces edits where I have five camera operators, I have one assistant editor and myself. The assistant editor ingests everything to a RAID that's attached to my computer and he's ingesting it across a gigabit net, uh, ethernet network. He organizes everything across the gigabit ethernet network while I continue to edit on the main edit. And he'll even go through every event so, like, for example, um, you know, there might be 20 different things that are happening on the island. Uh, that we do these things in Hawaii. And he'll go through, you know, 30 minutes of footage, cull it down to three minutes of the best of that footage. From that three, he'll then make me uh, a Final Cut event that he exports to me. I'll import that. And then from that three minutes of best of, and keep in mind, all the footage is on my drive. From that three minutes of best of, I might pull 12 seconds. And um, that way I don't have to look at all 30 minutes. I don't need, I barely have to look at all, all three minutes. But from, from that 30 minutes of footage, I'm going to pull 12 or 15 seconds of footage. But we do it on two computers, one RAID. The RAID is attached to the editor, so he gets the best performance, and then the rest of it. What you're talking about is actually much more advanced than I'm doing physically. I also want to point out there's a device. Sorry, I'm rambling on here. There's this this company called Iodine, and they make this hard drive thing, and it has 12 NVMe drives in it. It seems to be a big, giant hard drive that you can attach a bunch of computers, but if you read their marketing materials carefully, what it does is it gives four different people access to the storage space, but not necessarily to the same data, it would appear. I could be wrong about that. It seems like the ultimate simple uh, network-attached storage. Um, I mean, it's a good-looking box, but um, I don't think it's exactly what they talk about. It's also, look at it, 5 gigabits per second. Uh, wicked fast. But naming convention... Did you get a price on that? Thing. Yeah, it's stupid expensive. It's like 5 yeah. grand. Yeah, it's that, really that doesn't costly. surprise me. It's doing a lot, trying to do yeah. a lot. So, yeah, it might be a good solution if you're in that market. Jason, what do you think? Friends of the show, um, I think the developer's name was Hedge. Uh, they make an app called Offshoot. And, you know, in addition to other Paul things Lombard that are designed. Great company. Yeah, that are, that are designed to, you know, make uh, camera reports and, you know, scope box and, and all sorts of stuff that we've talked about in the past. Offshoot is their way of automating this process. And I think once you set it up, if you're going to train somebody, training them for, um, you know, for what could possibly go wrong. And in the meantime, just double your cards, just, just like, just double your cards and make sure you don't actually get rid of anything until, um, until it's actually verified and off, I think is a good idea. 
Yeah, offshoots a rebranding of Hedge, and I worked with Hedge, gosh, as, as long as five, six years ago. And I was in a situation where we had to take live stuff that we were doing at NAB and back it up and send it to multiple cards and just make sure everything was safe. So it's the DIT or digital intermediate technician workflow, the person on set who's responsible for making sure that no data is lost. Everything is backed up in multiple places. Usually you want primary, secondary, and tertiary backups as close to real time as you can. And they've been a really good source for me. So I would take a look at that offshoot program. Courtney, do you have other thoughts? I don't have any uh, suggestions, but I would try and not have volunteers do this position because it's an important position and uh, you could screw it up really bad. Uh, especially if you're getting submissions from different types of cameras, if it's just open type of, of submissions and you don't have control over which cameras are being used for what and what type of media they're submitting them on and what type of codec they're using, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's uh, video digital asset management software. So look out there for that. Uh, there's a num number of different manufacturers of this. Uh, look around if you have a production facility nearby, look at some, look for somebody who does data asset management for video shoots. Uh, there are professionals, there are union members that do this uh, and putting someone in charge of that that uh, does it for a living might be a good idea. Uh, to have them come in set it up at least and teach somebody else how to do it if you can't afford to employ them on a regular basis. Yeah, I do think I was rereading your question, Zach, and I think you're you're on an event, which means that probably the cameras are going to be specified as opposed to completely random. I remember doing a job for the Rocky Mountain Emmys and they had submissions from all over the Southwest. And it was unbelievable some of the formats I got in. I hadn't seen them in 15 years in some small station in you know, by a river somewhere had was still using that old stuff. And that was tough. Doesn't sound like you're in that kind of circumstance. So it might not be as easy, uh, as difficult as we're saying. CJ, you wanted to hop in? Uh, regardless of the way that, uh, of the direction that you choose to go, one thing I would uh, just echo a sentiment that was kind of tangentially referred to, whether it's offshoot or a different data manager, make sure it's doing a verified backup that it's confirming that it copied what it really thinks it copied. Chris thinks I'm crazy. Uh, and the other thing that I do that's really uh, out of control uh, over the top is I treat storage media as if it were able to be used only one time. Uh, and I keep, if I absolutely want to have an archive, if I have a 128 gigabyte or a two terabyte drive or whatever it is, that only gets recorded to one time. And then I put it in the archive and I get another one because that makes sure that I always have that backup there uh, built in and I never format. Yeah, that's that's uh, probably more data has been lost thinking, okay, that card came out of that camera. It's been offloaded. So I'll go ahead and reformat it and send it back out in the field. And you find out, oops, it wasn't. And that's catastrophic. And whatever was on there is gone now. So yeah, it, it's a tough job. And, I, and, and people who do this really are valuable. So Learn to do it. Next question. Coming in for the Q card again, or the QR code again. Scott Pulsifer in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania writes, and we've hit max capacity on our 40 by 40 video hub. We are thinking of adding our 12 by 12 hub into the workflow. Is this a practical solution? Uh, I don't do video hubs, so I don't know. And it doesn't look like anybody else on the panel has this. Oh, Chris Fanwick is going to raise his hand for me. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, Scott, maybe. 
uh, if you think about it, you, you do not have a 52 by 52 at the, at that point. What you have is a 12 by 12 that's going to route into one of the inputs of your 40. So it, it's, it could get super complicated. I don't know. D does Blackmagic have something bigger than the 40 by 40? And if they do, I would, you know, start saving toward that. It's, it's going to be a better, I think, yeah, Mickey's telling me they have an 80 by... Um, you're going to be much happier and much less headaches. You might be able to sub-switch stuff down from the 12 into one of the inputs of the 40, but it's just going to be confusing. And that was another QR code entry, which means, don't forget, you still have time to get some questions in. If you'd like to, follow the QR code or go to officehours.global and follow the Mukana links. Next question. Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida writes in, started getting full screen ads to use the Tapatalk app when visiting Blackmagic forums. Anyone using it? Third party app, uh, but must be a formal relationship. Ooh, I'm always a little, um, boy, when I start seeing ads show up in some piece of software that I'm using, I don't like the fact that somebody's got a link into mine and is trying to mine my, my network for things. Um, I'm not, and now that you said that, Tapatalk is not something that I would probably be looking for. Um, that's just me. Maybe I'm totally wrong, and it's a fabulous thing. CJ, do you have any experience? Not in Tapatalk, but when I get mad at third-party app uh, ads, usually it's solved only if I can be inside my house because I'll put a uh, I'll put a DNS level host block right on the router and then it just doesn't let any ads come in and then if I want to click on an Amazon ad I have to go off a of Wi-Fi and connect to the cellular I just stop all the ads yeah I got to tell you the marketers and their hooks and trying to get into your system and monetize what you're doing on the other end ugh, it's a terrible thing and I, I Try to do anything I can to avoid avoid it. Next question. Uh, coming in from the QR code, Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana writes in, what are the possible mocap applications that would use this technology developed for medical research at Stanford? Might the motion tracking be too basic for any entertainment purposes? And he includes a YouTube link. That came in, I guess, yesterday, and we probably should have gotten to it. I'm sorry, we were a little confused today. That, that There's a link there, and I don't think anybody has gone to YouTube to watch that. Um, I do know there's a, just a ton of research happening out there in the motion capture, uh, and Chris was, I think, looking at it, and they were, they were talking about lots of boxes. No, you weren't? Okay, you were looking at something else. Fair enough. So I don't know if we know enough about it. Um, if it, if it was technology that came out of medical research at Stanford, that was probably highly vetted and correct research. But that doesn't mean that their motion tracking uh, is exactly what you need. It may be, and then again, it may not. Courtney, do you have any additional information? Just briefly looked at some of this. Uh, but a lot of this uh, medical motion tracking is for sports medicine, uh, for tracking you know the positions of your arms and legs over time. And it's not very accurate, you know, that would be neat. The accuracy needed to do, you know, uh, overlays for visual effects for a motion picture. It's nowhere near that kind of stuff. It's it's designed for time motion analysis, you know, as wow. to where your uh, arms are in that golf swing or how fast your, you know, how fast your legs are, you're, are coming down on the track as you're running around and, you know, how high you're jumping over the hurdles, et cetera. Uh, but it's not as precision, I think, as uh, 
as the motion tracking required for, you know, with multiple uh, infrared capture cameras surrounding you in a matrix and tracking trackers that are attached to you uh, might be a little, give a lot more accuracy than something that's just looking at a single camera to determine, using AI to determine, you know, where your legs are. And they're doing that now with uh, a lot of the software that has come out for phones to, uh, you know, to track people to make sure that their whole body is included in the frame, et cetera. But it's, I don't think it's that accurate. Uh, I'd have to watch the YouTube video and it's about four minutes long. Don't it? Yeah, I would think the same thing. Plus, you know, the Unreal Engine type people, the people who are doing serious motion capture and want to do and have a back end where there is a flood of money and things like video games, where if you can cut time off the production process, you can make huge amounts of money to be more efficient, get more games out quicker. I would look in those kind of things. They're doing realistic human simulation. Ooh, I can say that. Realistic human simulation. And uh, there's a big back end of profit built behind that. So I would look to them rather than looking for the sports medicine folks. Uh, just how kind I see it. Let's go to the next question. Danny Grizzle in Longview, Texas writes in, I'd like to hear strategies on long-term archival data management. Chris Fenwick's current comments are excellent, but he may have answered this. Uh, but press on to archive. I've used Retrospect to uh, do LTO. Linear tape um, that's always been around. Chris Fenwick, what say you? Danny, I'm going to, first of all, I want to commend you and I uh, highly recommend and encourage more questions that come in directly toward me. I'm not that, always a, a two thumbs up for that. Um, first of all, um, I want to be careful. You say long-term archive, and I want to I want to clarify. I'm I'm a hack. Okay, I, I work on corporate video that doesn't have like you know hundred year significance. All right, it may not have five year significance. I will tell you that because of our data system, I have on several occasions been asked to pull up a project that we did, you know, that we cut five, eight, ten years ago, and they go, oh, this person was fired, we want to, or, or this one person in there has a new title, can you change their lower third? And it's a ten-year-old project. Um, recently, one of our clients, their lawyers have turned down the screws, and they want to drop in all kinds of disclaimers in videos that are five and six and seven years old. You know, so when somebody says something, they want a lower third. So it's handy, but it's not culturally significant. If, if you really care about long-term archival for something that's potentially really important, you know, to society and humanity, maybe, I would not necessarily recommend doing what I do. So what I do, though, I, this is what I was showing, Bill. This is a very small little subset of some of the hard drives. Look, you can see... I'm missing number 232. I'm missing 247. The reason for that is COVID. Uh, a lot of our drives are scattered all over the place now. Uh, it's confusing. Um, I just, I dump stuff off of my fast raids to OEM, bare drives. Alex, had, Alex used to have a, 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 a library of 2,000 drives. We have a few hundred drives. Um, and archive, and uh, scan, I scan them. The, the real trick is you scan it so you can find stuff later. And just give stuff numbers. Don't give stuff themed names like Doc and Dopey and Lazy or whatever. That's silly. Just give everything a number. It gives you an indication of how old something is. Um, I will say I used to do the retrospect in LTO. I, uh, back in the late 90s, I bought 
the best LTO drive that you could. I spent a lot of money on it. And the first time I tried to retrieve something off of it, it failed. And I was like, I'm never doing that again. And it was an expensive drive. I didn't cut corners. I bought the very best one and it just didn't work. So for what I do, I like, I've just put stuff on old spinning hard drives. Um, it's the, it's also, may I say, it's also the cheapest way to store lots of data. But in terms of like really important long-term, I wouldn't recommend doing it this way. Yeah, it, everything, you have to be practical about stuff. There's always like, you know, the industry standard, absolute best, but do you really need that? And I did, we just determined we don't need industry standard, absolute very best. What we do works great for what we need. Yeah, I'll never forget. I was doing work for PetSmart back in the day. And when I started shooting, everybody wore red shirts. And then some in about year five, a dictum comes down that they're all going to change to green shirts. And I just realized that day, everything I've shot up to this point is useless. I can't put red shirt people in a green shirt video. So I had to dump just tons. And I Hugh, Hugh. could have made the mistake of keeping all that green shirt stuff. Well, maybe we'll do a retrospective. You know, five years later, they're sold to another conglomerate and things like that. So, you know, it, coming to terms with not everything you shoot is precious is a hard thing. I had to face that a couple of times in my career. Jason? Danny, I'll give you some more kind of um, cerebral, conceptual backup stuff. Um, there's this thing called the 3 to one backup strategy, and here, here it is just in a nutshell. Three, the data doesn't exist until it exists in three places, the original and two backups, two of which are on two different media, um, disk and cloud, disk and disk, but two physical different boxes. And then one is one of which is in a different physical location. The way that you do that um, is going to vary a lot on your workflow and, and your time frame. But those concepts, although they were invented for library science, turn out to work really, really well for data retention. Courtney. Well, it depends on the type of data that you want to back up and how long you want to back it up for long term. What do you consider long term? Uh, a lot of the media conglomerates, as far as backing up major motion pictures and television shows, they're backing it up in a format that is not digital that can be decoded with eyes and ears. So they've been actually taking digitally created media and lasering it out to uh, YCM color separations on 35 millimeter black and white motion picture film, which has a very long stable life of over a hundred years. Uh, and they, they know that in a hundred years when you're dead and uh, you know you want something to be discovered by your ancestors, to determine, you know, what were they watching on television? Uh, you know, what did Laverne and Shirley look like back in the 70s? Uh, they'll be able to dig out that uh, film, hold it up to the light and say, oh, that's what it looked like. And we can translate that to what other, other, what other uh, whatever magical digital format they have 100 years from now. Uh, and you don't have to worry about data migration and migrating it from media to media. The problem with storing encoded digital data that's stored in a compressed format or with a codec that translates uh, an image to numbers is that you have to have that, you have to depend on that codec or that uh, translation software being available, you know, 50 to 100 years in the future. 
And there's no guarantees that that's going to be exists. If you have stuff that you stored on your zip drives in the 70s, now it's really hard to retrieve that data because zip drives aren't made anymore, and most of them failed while they were still in in manufacturing. So, uh, uh, so it is going to be a problem. There are solutions out there. Seagate makes solutions. If you if you look look them up, uh, they have. Uh, here, uh, they have a whole website on media and entertainment data storage solutions uh, about the best spending hard drives, et cetera, to, to store your data on for, uh, uh, you know, long, not long-term storage, but, you know, medium-term storage. But if you're looking for archival purposes so that, you know, archaeologists in the future are going to be able to dig out your masterpiece and uh, put it on whatever form of interweb communications they have in you know 2055 uh or 2095 direct a brain neural connection yeah yeah you'll be there okay uh let's see um oh chris found a corner to sneak back in on this one last thing danny uh you know the the company i think it's called backblaze they uh, online uh data repository they do an annual study on uh the robust um, nature of various specific hard drives that they buy, you know, they buy gobs of drives, obviously. And um, the number for several years now, I don't know what it is currently, but for several years, the number one uh, most crashed, like absolutely don't ever, don't ever buy that hard drive is, is exactly the drive that I've been buying for a decade. And um, I'll tell you, I've lost one drive out of 320 or something in 15 years. And obviously it's changed a little bit because 16 years ago we couldn't buy the same size. But you you can't believe everything. And also, you know, we, we don't work our drives really hard. We usually write everything to them, shelve it, and we'll pull it out, you know, a couple years later. So it doesn't get spun up very often. Anyway, just be careful about all the data you listen to. Yeah. I remember reading about MTBF, meantime between failure, and sometimes, you know, the whole thing is based on statistics, and who knows? Meantime between failure is actually quite interesting. So my first nonlinear system, we had a a 9 gig, 9 gig, 9 gig drive uh, fail. Uh, in the first like six months, and I called my business partner at the time. I'm like, "Oh no, we had a drive fail, and the system didn't work without both of the drives uh, spinning." And he goes, mm, "I'll be right there." And he magically sort of showed up. He was a like a he he wasn't in the office every day. He shows up like 15 minutes later, and he comes walking in with a cardboard box. I go, "What is that?" And he goes, uh, "I'll take care of it." And he goes into the machine room and he powers down the machine. He pulls the nine gig drive out. He puts it in another enclosure and he fires it right up and everything was fine. And I said, first of all, how'd you know that would work? And he goes, well, I didn't know it would work, but the meantime between failure on these drives is like 36, 360,000 hours, which is like 20 years or something absurd like that. He goes, it's probably not the drive. I just assumed it was the enclosure. I said, I called you 15 minutes ago. He goes, I was driving by and I had a spare enclosure in my trunk. It's like, okay. <laughs> that's that's the difference between book learning and in the streets learning. There you go. That's uh, what being based in Silicon Valley is. Yeah, that's true too. Nigel, you had some comments? 
I, I, I used to manufacture and sell, work for a company that manufactured and sold LT drives. And I can tell you the meantime between failure is like playing on a slot machine that says it's going to pay out 95%. It's on a bell curve. <laughs> bell curves have extremes at each end and mean is the middle. So uh, always have a backup strategy. Mean is in angry, not mean as in the average. Eh? Uh, well, that was fun. Let's go to the next question. Daniel Patridge in Rochester, Minnesota writes in, how about going over protocols expected of people coming in the office hours Zoom during live like right now and when not live testing Zoom ISO software? Well, Daniel, thank you for asking. Uh, there's all sorts of process. We encourage people to come onto the panel, generally speaking. Um, for the whole history of office hours, the only things you really needed was decent audio, decent video, and some expertise that you're willing to share in something that has to do with what any of the topics we talk about. You don't have to know everything about everything. You can know a lot of things about a, a particular niche. Maybe you'll have some uh, wisdom and knowledge on, on some other topics. But basically, it's the desire to share it and having um, having those basics taken care of in terms of a web presence. We did spend a lot of time in the early days, and I think you'll agree that everybody on this show tends to look really good in terms of their video presence on Zoom or other social media sites. Um, we all decided that we were gonna try to play up and into that. And it's one of the things that sets this show apart. So we are, um, you know, one of the reasons we do a mic check every single day, even though we've gone through it hundreds of times, is we realize how important the audio content of the show is. That's where most of the information is carried to people. And in fact, people listen to the show and don't watch it. So we're pretty, you know, specific about having a decent microphone. It can be one of a dozen or even a hundred different types. Uh, having a relatively quiet, non-distracting space that you can show up on the show from. And having a decent camera and decent lighting so that you kind of fit into the way the show looks. But those things said, anybody is welcome. Everybody is welcome. And in fact, we do new panelist sessions pretty regularly. So check those out. Excuse me. Uh, I've been a little ill. Uh, I'm sorry. Next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana writes in, if you were designing coursework for high school students to gain both an understanding of and possible employment in the media production industry, where would you start your research and what resources would you use long term? CJ. I had a, I was really, really, really fortunate uh, when I was in high school to have a really great program that where we did about 100 live events a year. We covered every football game, every volleyball game, every basketball game. And there was no amount of classroom experience that I could have uh, had that would have given me the experience of we're live at seven. Uh, and especially now that you're not just recording so that you, know, you can give it to the film room, you can literally be broadcasting over YouTube. So I would say the first thing is figure out what your budget is to get gear into the hands of these kids and let them get creative. And then number two, make sure that you don't spend everything on what's going to break. Like the stuff that you're going to put in their hands, expect some of it to end up falling off the tripod because they're learning. Uh, and then make them watch. Like we always did post-mortems, even when we were a bunch of 14 and 15-year-olds, but we would sit down every Monday night and we would watch the highlights and the lowlights from the prior week's productions. And uh, by having to examine ourselves and hold ourselves accountable, 
we all had that thought going into the next one. But yeah, just cannot replace real experience. John Snyder. Yeah, I'm going to make a few assumptions based on the question here. First of all, he said coursework. So I'm going to assume that means it's some sort of classroom setting as opposed to like a, a club or something like that. He also said um, getting an uh, understanding of possible employment in the industry. So it sounds to me like we're talking about a class. And I would always start a class design with who's my audience first, because a freshman in high school is a totally different person than a senior in high school. And based on that, you're going to identify what your course objectives are. What do you want your learners to get as a result of attending your class? What will they be able to do once they're done? Then I'd ask myself, what are my constraints? Is this a one semester class or is it a four year class? Or maybe it's a four year um, path that I want people to be able to walk through. Hugely different content based on what I'm doing. My immediate thoughts are you want to probably share the broad scope of different futures you can have in media production. Most kids going into those classes are probably thinking I can be a YouTube influencer or I can be the person behind the switchboard that I see on ESPN between the commercials. So um, expose them to all the different scenarios they could be corporate, nonprofit, local uh, broadcasts and the key stages of the production industry. Like there's someone behind a camera. There's someone like we we're talking earlier whose job is just to move the data around and help students see there's a huge variety of options including bringing some of those people in to be guest speakers at the class or to bring in guest videos with the class. Um, that'll help jumpstart the network for your students um, and let you use different examples for each different vertical. Uh, if your objective is to really prepare your students to get that job in media, I would include an assessment that has students uh, prepare for an interview, that has students build out their resume. Um, maybe even have the students interview someone in the industry to ask their questions and they can create a little bit of uh, start their portfolio with the interview they did for their class. Those would be things I'd be thinking of. Uh, Nigel. Yeah, John has much better advice than I do. I just have a very simplistic thought, which is there are 10,000 great YouTube videos that are probably available in shorts or even TikToks where they demonstrate something specific about the actions around filmmaking and lighting and do that. And I think there's a great opportunity now for training people where you get them to watch that, then they go and do it. They don't necessarily get, need to do it with an expensive camera. They can do it with their iPhone. They can do it with a bunch of people. I just think there's so much that younger people like to watch the YouTube video and then go try it and copy it. That's a great way to get them some of the skills. Chris Hanwick. Um, You know, Roscoe, what I would say is that there's kind of two facets in this industry. There's the standalone creator producer, and then there's people that need to work on a larger crew. If I was trying to teach the standalone creator producer, I would just say, just do a lot. Like once a week, I want another video from you, uh, maybe twice a week. I'd, I'd push them hard. It's okay if it's not great. It had, it, each one should be better. Uh, but you've got to meet your deadlines. That that would be one thing. In terms of working with with a crew, with a large crew, I think one of the things that I would do is I would encourage them. Uh, I might give them like a, an assignment to say like, come up with twenty people on a credit roll and write me a one page paper on what that job is and what it entails and who they answer to and who works below them. I think understanding the hierarchy on a crew is super important. And then the last thing I would do is I would give them like a couple of times uh, throughout a semester, I would give them the assignment 
to research and report back a new technology that is not, you know, well understood, where they actually have to go and like hone on, hone up their Google foo. And hey, Chris, you got five out, seconds. I got to get to the top And find out of all that information and give it back because learning how to learn is important in this industry. I'm done. Absolutely. Don't forget, tomorrow we're doing our Apple event breakdown here on the show on Wednesday, a lab on the MixPre 3. On Thursday, the EVS system playback and recording workflows. That'll be fun. Friday, another lab on how the Office Hours website is built. Um, and don't forget, we have show workshops every Tuesday at noon Pacific and then the after hours stuff. Uh, all sorts of things. Uh, we're going to have that show workshop at uh, 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We'll be right back with our second hour topic. Welcome back to the second hour. Today we should have a really exciting discussion. I love these Mondays. Liberty started this a long time ago. We're talking about general business topics and things that we all wish we had known when we were getting into this business. Today we're specifically looking at company culture. And the little blurb on it was strategy without a plan for culture is a recipe for failure. And I got to tell you, through my corporate history, working with relative, well, I started with small, then medium, got up to pretty large corporations. And corporate culture is a real thing. And the more you understand about it, the better off you are. In my own personal marketing and advertising work, I have gone through so many diverse cultures. Um, it was really interesting. I, I found a home and worked for maybe 20 years with PetSmart. And I think it was because, in part, their corporate culture and my personal desires aligned really well. Uh, everybody that I met and worked with there had that kind of open heart because they were all pet people. Uh, went so far as on their corporate masthead, every one of their executives had their pet. And it could be a puppy, it could be a kitten, it could be an iguana for all we knew. But they, they made that a part of their corporate culture. And it was a culture of of taking care of things. And I always like that about them. I always, I remember a day that um, right after I started working for them, we were on set and the director of training who was sitting next to me walked over and said, we're going to take a break for at least 15 minutes. And I said, did something happen? What? He said, no, that dog is stressed and we are going to break, stop, even with all the crew. And we're going to stand around until that pet settles down a little bit. And the bond that that kind of corporate culture in terms of it resonating with me was really pretty powerful. I felt good about working with that company. I had another circumstance later where I got a very large uh, meat packing company came to me and said, we'd love you to make some videos for us. And we talked about it and said, we're going to go to the slaughterhouse and watch people kill cows all day. And listen, I'm not a vegetarian. I, I, I understand that and I appreciate their products, but I wasn't sure I wanted to go and immerse myself in a very different culture. And even the scripts that I saw for those two different organizations were very different. So I do think that understanding corporate culture can be a very powerful thing. It's, it's, it's an it's one of the things about whether you'll fit in and feel fulfilled in doing the work that you're going to be doing. So we've got some really smart people here who've been uh, looking at this stuff and making sense out of it for a long time. We're going to start with Nigel. Nigel, talk to us a little bit about your feeling about corporate culture. Okay. I mean, you talked a little bit there about living uh, in a corporate culture and understanding a corporate culture uh, is pretty important. But how do you create one? So, so let's ask the question, how do you, how do you go about it? Um, and I would tell you that uh, there are two things in my world 
that if they're not real, you can't make them work for you. One of is uh, the value proposition. You can't invent a value proposition for yourself that isn't real. It's completely useless. And you can't define a culture that isn't real because you can't live to something that isn't real. So so if if you're starting a, a team, can be one person, can be five people, can be 300 people, can be 10,000 people, Let's think a bit about how you might go about establishing what the culture is before you work out what you want it to be, because the real trick is how do you get it from one to the other. So what large companies do and what organizations do, but is really even doable at the single person, is think about what your vision and mission is. And that might seem like strange, but if you if your objective, as Bill just talked about, was to serve a community best, then you've got to be able to write that down in your vision or mission. You've got to be able to really work out what you are there to do. Because the next thing that follows is the question, how does it feel? What are we doing when we do it best? When we're making our vision or our mission work, what is it that we're doing? How are we behaving? You need to write that down because hidden within that is the culture. It's probably about listening and it's about sharing. But as a team working out what those things are and prioritizing them uh, is really important. Next stage, having done that, is is write them down and try and live them. The, the thing about visions and missions and culture is don't assume you're going to get it right first time. They are living, breathing things. But, but really think through as a team what it looks like when things are going well, when you're achieving the objectives. How are you working together? What makes sense? What makes it the place to work? Because locked in there is the culture. And it's very hard to do this as a single person. It's very hard to stare at a blank sheet of paper and say, let me now explain to you, because I'm going to write down my culture. So get a group together, think about it, talk about it, share it out loud, and, and start to write that down. But again, the number one thing in culture as a leader is if you've established what your culture is, and where I work, we, we sort of put four things down as to the things we care about. You have to live it. You have to be the embodiment of it. You have to some extent be the cop that makes sure people follow it. You can't, for instance, say the number one thing we do is we listen to each other and share our plans. If you don't listen and you don't share your plans. that uh, Like that a fish, they say, rots from the head down. Uh, so does a company culture. So a few yeah. thoughts. I've seen that happen more than I can tell you. And for those of you who are watching or are contributors today, uh, I would love to hear examples from your work experiences or life experiences of getting yourself into a corporate culture, either that worked or didn't work, and some ex examples of what managers or your supervisors or people below you when you were supervising, the times when it went right and times when it went wrong. I'd love to hear just your input about this. We have a wide audience with a wide variety of different things, so... Toss those in, use the QR code or whatever, and we will discuss them here. Uh, John Snyder has some thoughts. Yeah, and Nigel's 100% right. If you want to design a culture, that's the way you go about doing it. I think what I see a lot is people, especially individual contributors, they join a team and they say, oh, it's got a great culture or um, it's got a bad culture, as if culture is a separate entity than the result of everyone's behaviors. Culture is 100% about the behaviors the people in the team do. Um, based on the incentive, incentives they're given. So if you want a collaborative culture, you need to be able to defer to each other as a team. You need to have healthy conflict as a team. 
If you want a culture of performance, you need to have clear expectations and incentives that align with those expectations. If you want to have a culture of uh, work-life balance, then you need to be able to take care of your work and your life, even when there's tension between the two. Culture is a result of your behaviors first, so you decide what you want, and then you work your behaviors that way. And a specific example I can think of is I had a, a new team given to me for the last three months. It's a customer service team for a health plan line. And one of the things that's important to me as a leader is taking care of our customers and thinking about customer sentiment. So I look at our, our call stats, and one of the most important drivers for me as a leader is sentiment. So I started talking about sentiment in every single meeting. I started setting the expectations for sentiment. And my team went from having the lowest overall customer sentiment to the second highest in the department. And the only team that beat it was my last team. Um, and that's because we talk about it, we incentivize it, I recognize it, and I call people out when they're not doing it. So it's all about the behaviors you choose to do and the conversations you have, and then you create a culture based on your behavior. Yeah, you just mentioned something, you used the term, I think it was healthy conflict or something like that, or conflict management, something that that uh, caused me to think of, how do, you, how do you train people not to avoid conflict, but to create something positive out of a corporate conflict, either between two people or between one division and another, whatever? What I do when I have conflict with people is I talk with them about it and I say, it sounds like we have conflict. We're not going to be on the same page. And I try to become beside the person and point out me and you, we're on the same side. There's a conflict that we need to fight together. And you triangulate against the conflict instead of against the other person. Um, and really, it's, it's being willing to talk about the elephant in the room uh, by directly just addressing it. Uh, and again, I, I this think happens it's all the time in our department. Yeah, the thing that struck me was that conflict can be healthy. It can expose flaws in systems or whatever. If somebody's really, if something's bugging them, that's something that you as a manager need to know about and see if you can help resolve it for the entire operation. Because if you're having it in your area, somebody's probably having it in another area. Uh, let's move on. CJ. To build on what John was saying, um, I also embrace not, I embrace disagreement. I embrace differing opinions and try to foster the, try to encourage people to speak their mind if they think they have something to say. Cause I believe everybody comes to the table with a different set of life experiences and something different to contribute. And it's not, even though we get passionate about what we do, it's never, it's not personal. It's the brutal facts of what are, what is the situation of the business at this current time. Uh, and then the number one thing that I do when there is conflict that needs to be resolved is to help party A and party B see the situation through the lens of the other person. The one advantage that you have as a manager or as someone who goes between different departments is that you have perspective from the different parties who are in uh, some sort of disagreement or some sort of conflict. But to, to zoom out to the broader uh, topic about creating culture, I think a big part of it is, as a business leader is who are you hiring and who are you bringing onto your team? Because an individual could be very talented at the job function that we're asking them to do but be incredibly toxic to the people around them. And the, the, those, those intangibles, those effects that they're having on the people with whom they're working, those are the things that can take the level of 
four other employees down because you hired someone that's good at one particular role. I'm always looking for people who are going to not only just fit in with the people that I'm surrounding them with, but make them better, improve the uh, overall climate of the office and not send it in the other direction. The other thing to be careful about is be careful about what you measure. Because when you start measuring things or assigning uh, KPI, key performance indicators to uh, your business, people start paying attention and they start modifying all of their behavior to serve the measurement. And if you are incentivizing or measuring the wrong things, then you might end up having unintended consequences. Uh, so I always try to find the the things that you can't measure. Like, for instance, somebody that is uh, somebody that's worried about profit margins say, well, you can't lose money on that one line item on the order because that's going to show a negative margin. But if they don't see the thing that you can't measure, which is what if we lose this customer and they go somewhere else because we decided to put our foot in the sand for something that's really inconsequential, uh, then they're losing sight of the big picture. So so really just be careful about the things that you incentivize because incentive incentive drives behavior. Absolutely. Nigel, you haven't come back? Yeah, I wanted to come back on the conflict conflict thing because uh, conflict uh, can be a terrible thing if you let it fester. And by the way, you've got to learn to have difficult conversations as a leader and conflict is typically the best one you want to work with. Uh, and as said, you're not going to sort this out until you've had it, but I will, I will give you two things that might help you with that. First of all, and someone sort of said this, is you've got to assume it's the right thing to never take it personally or make it personal. So when you get into the situation, you've got to set the ground rules. We're going to have a difficult conversation. It's important that we neither make it personal or take it personal because that's going to derail us up. We're going to get you know, flooded with hormones and our amygdalas are going to be hijacked and will not be useful for 20 minutes. The second thing is I think people forget you've got to start with an idea that most people have best intentions and they're trying to do the right thing and what's misunderstood is that you're just not communicating with each other. And so the right thing to each of you may be the wrong thing for the other person. And so getting someone to articulate what the right thing is in the conflict situation, what they're trying to do, getting the other person to assume that they're doing it with best intentions is a great way into fixing that. Uh, if you're someone who likes books, there is a lot of books on culture. Culture Code's a really interesting book, but probably not the right uh, one here. I often send leaders to the five dysfunctions of a team. I think it's a really easy book. It's a parable. Uh, it's not very uh, hard on a you know textbook to read, but it really walks through some of the key things that when a culture is missed and our leadership is out of line with its culture, really some of the bad things that happen. And I, I would encourage people, if you're interested in this area, if you've never read Five Dysfunctions, really worth a read. Thank you. Good. Jason. Yeah, John also uh, knocked something loose in my brain. Um, it, it occurred to me that that conflict is an incredible opportunity to um, to stress test. It is a crucible for culture, and um, conflict avoided is is culture destroyed. And that I can't, I can't think of a, a situation where that's not the case. So, embrace conflict and recognize it as the opportunity that it is. Absolutely. All right, let's go to the next question, our first question, actually. 
Laura Thompson in Beaumont, Texas writes in, what questions can you ask when you are being interviewed to get an idea of culture? Ooh, good question. John, start us out. Nigel, come right in after you. John? I would ask as part of the interview process to speak with somebody who's not your direct leader, um, separate from your direct leader, uh, potential direct leader, so that you can ask them, like, what's it like to work here? Um, what's expected day to day? What's important to the boss, if possible? A lot of interview systems don't allow that. Um, and so sometimes you just wind up in a culture that uh, is different than what you saw in the interview. Uh, on the other side, though, sometimes you bring in someone to the culture that's different than they were in the interview, too. <laughs> Absolutely. Nigel? Yeah, the question I ask when I, I go for a job is, what does it take to be successful in this company? What, uh, what do successful people do? What do they look like? And people in this position or the last person in the position, what did they do that didn't work? What, where did they derail? What you're starting to try and work for is where are the, the third rails? Where are the difficult things? Where are the, the things that in this job are going to make you not successful. And, it, and if you hear things like, well, you know, they were very outspoken, you know, they get very frustrated because nobody listened to them, then you're going to start hearing warning bells about what the culture is. Now, you've got to understand it, maybe the culture of that manager and not of the whole company, but you're not going to do that unless, as suggested, you talk to people outside the cell you're working in. But, but find out what it takes to be successful because you'll probably find that tells you a lot about the culture. CJ. The other thing that I'll often uh, either ask when I'm interviewing someone or, or hope that they ask me during that interview is, I mean, what are the top two or three things that I can do to add the most value to your organization? And when you specifically talk about that word value, uh, it's an, it, you're leaving it open-ended because the person on the other side of the table, the person who's interviewing you can take that in a lot of different directions. If they immediately go to these are the percentage of sales that we need year over year, and these, this is the metric that I need you to keep in terms of profit margins or revenue goals or new accounts opened or whatever. That's going to tell you one part of it. But if they talk about other people on the team or other, individual, other teams and organizations within the company, then you'll start to get an idea of, well, where does, where does this manager and where does this company place the word value? That makes really good sense. Well, you're getting a lot of wisdom here, audience, today, that people who've been here and done it and really understand how it works. Let's go on to the next question. Rion Smith in Trinidad, West Indies, Trinidad in Tobago, writes in, uh, how would you know the corporate culture from the outside before pitching to do any technology-based contracted work for that company? Ooh, good question, Nigel. Well, I think you, you start by asking, who am I pitching to? And, and where are they in the organization? And what are the criteria that are going to make this deal? Who gets to sign it off? I mean, if, if, you know, if you're in a very large company and you end up, you know, talking to a line manager and he goes, great, now it's time to talk. Or she says, now it's time to talk to procurement. You know, you are in a very different culture than talking to the person saying, no, no, I have the budget and I have the ability to make this decision. So you'll get a sense of that at the level of which you're pitching. Now, there are some jobs you do where you don't want to pitch them too high. You don't want to be in the vice president or the director's or the senior vice president's office because there's just no upside to that. But there are sometimes you need to be there. So it really depends on the work and what you're pitching. But you'll get a sense from who you're talking to 
and whether what decision-making power they have or who's going to make the decisions as to what the culture looks like. It's it, And it can be very hard, particularly as companies get larger that you're going into, that you may have a cultural problem or, or a difficulty talking with the person who's your direct report or whatever, but there may be other people that you would get along really well with, and it, it can be difficult. I had a circumstance years ago where they brought in a consultant, and instead of working for the people I normally did, I was working for the consultant. And it was a very difficult thing because she just didn't really know this area. I think they were trying to cross-train her into something, but it was very difficult to get the same level of buy-in and here's what we're going to do. And I think the fact that she was out of her realm in the area that she and I were working on meant that she was really defensive about it. And I didn't find a way to break through that. And it was a very difficult project. And it was mostly because in in most of the cases I worked for people I really respected, their knowledge and the rest of that, this was just an oddball case where somebody came in and was essentially in charge of this project but didn't have the skills to do it. And it was, ugh, I hope I never get in that situation again. Uh, CJ, you had other thoughts? The other thing I would just offer as a word of caution is be careful going to something like a glassdoor.com and reading what the employees have said about the business because often the people that really, really like their jobs aren't leaving the reviews on glassdoor.com. Yeah. There's a little bit of a negative confirmation bias there. Uh, the, uh, the other app that I found to be really interesting, and it's uh, not going to work for a really small organization, but there's an app for the iPhone called Blind that allows uh, – people to anonymously post about their uh, companies like a, it's really it's tech focused or tech heavy so you're going to find a lot of apples and googles and amazons and some financial institutions uh, but there are some really candid conversations on there and they actually they make you register with and with an email address for that business uh, so somehow or another they're verifying your employment before they're letting you post about it but again just trying to find either a source where employees or other vendors have said something about the business uh, or even better if you know other vendors that have sold to that business and you have a personal relationship with them if your industry is fairly small sometimes it's a pretty shallow pool in terms of the people that you can talk to having those relationships and just asking around but again when it's an online source and especially when it's anonymous Beware of that negative bias. Absolutely. I run into that more than I can tell you. Courtney? Yeah, I really shouldn't even be here because I have no advice on uh, uh, corporate structure because I've always worked outside the corporate structure being an entrepreneur and I'm the antithesis of corporate structure. But I have had to occasionally work within uh, or with people involved in that corporate structure. And uh, so one tip I would have for you is find the person that you're you have a meeting with and find out where they are in the company org chart. You know, the company org charts are these things that look like this that show uh, who's where and who's under who and what division is under what division. And so know where your, you know, where your job is going to lie in that org chart and who you're going to be serving under and who's above who so that you're careful and you don't step on toes that you shouldn't step on and to work within that uh, corporation uh, without... Uh, crossing the line into, you know, competing 
descendants of the org chart. You know, you don't want to cross divisions, et cetera, et cetera. So I have very little experience in working, although I have been a president of corporations and uh, chief financial uh, chief executive officer of corporations. Um, I don't work well in that situation. So I'll sit out most of this. <laughs> but that's my advice is find an org chart for the company and find out where you're coming in and who you're coming in under and how powerful they are and who's above them, et cetera. Because it helps to find your way through the mass of multi, uh, you know, intermediate uh, managers in, in corporations. You know. uh, yeah, I remember that. I won't tell that story. Let's, uh, CJ has a thought. CJ? Uh, one more thing that I that I employed before I would make a formal presentation to a business when I was in the sales role, I I think I borrowed it from uh, a Zig Ziglar audio t uh, cassette that I used to listen to, and it was about when you go into an organization, identify uh, or utilize the he called it the Pogo principle, and it was identify who's the person you're speaking with. What's the organization structure around them? And then together, what are the goals that they're trying to achieve and the obstacles that are in their way of achieving those things? When you identify the person, the organization, the goals, and the obstacles, you can then get a really good idea not only of, okay, how is this organization structured? How is it working? But also, how can I best present what I have to offer through the lens of their perspective? Absolutely. The other thing I would focus on, too, is trust. If you, um, I can't tell you the number of times I advanced working with higher ups in the organization because somebody had come to trust that I would be okay for their boss to interact with or their boss's boss to interact with. Now, specifically in production and things like that, you're often in front of or working around senior executives. If you're creating videos for a corporation, you'll often have spokespeople who are higher up the corporate ladder. But if you can interact with them in a way that they will start saying, okay, this guy's not going to embarrass me. He's going to be, he's going to show up on time. He's going to show up well presented. He's going to do his job right. And I'm not going to have to worry about him, which is to me the number one highest compliment you can get in any corporate structure. If I call Bill, I don't have to worry about him. Uh, that probably accelerated me up corporate cultures more than anything else. And that's just using your judgment and making sure that you don't make the little mistakes like, you know, talking down people while you're on a set or things like that. All the things that Alex often really pushes on here, your corporate social skills can be very important if you want to ascend the corporate ladder. Let's go to the next question. Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts writes in, are there good metrics to measure how you're doing against the intent? Nigel, help us out here. So I think you have to go back to the idea that I think John covered, which is, is what are the metrics you're using to drive the business? So if you have a vision and mission, if you know what you're trying to achieve, there'll be metrics of whether you're achieving that. And 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 remember, whatever you uh, inspect, they will respect, which is the point John was making. And I think very hard to get good company culture met metrics. The, the really the best one is, best ones are around, would you recommend this place as someone somewhere you want to work. What we typically do is is every year we do an annual employee survey where we tend to ask them those sorts of questions. And and if the if the if the if the size of the survey is big enough, then you're going to deal with some of the 
the vagaries of people having a bad week, bad month, bad quarter or something, or an unhappiness. If the organization is small, obviously, you know, if it's 10 people, they're not doing a survey, it's going to be, you know, the margin of error is going to be bigger than the sample size. So be careful of that. But, but go back to the metrics you have of what success looks like and then line those up with how people are feeling about working there and whether they would recommend somebody else to come and work there. John Snyder. Yeah, and, and what I did with my teams is I took my supervisors through an activity, like Nigel saying, where we said, okay, what is the vision and mission of your team? How, when you're doing well, what, is, what does that look like for your team? What does your team exist for? Why are we paying you? And so like maybe the training team says, my job is to empower our agents to be able to handle calls in a timely manner. It's like, okay, so what does empower look like? What does timely look like? Who are the agents? And then you can put a measure to what each of those statements of your vision statement, some are better or more specific than others, and all of them are not enough. You want different measures that pull against each other. So you're not, like CJ was saying, incentivized just against certain measures. Um, the good heart, good Hearts Law says any measure that becomes a target, like that's the thing you're going for is the target instead of the measure, uh, ceases to be a good measure because people are incentivized to just target that one thing. And so you want, you want to think of measures as signposts that give you an idea of how you're doing and which direction you're going. Um, and try not to as much as you can, um, especially if they're qualitative versus quantitative measures, focus so much on the measure that it inhibits other parts of your business. And so, yes, there are good metrics for most things. They can be really hard to, to obtain. And sometimes it's simpler, faster, whatever, to just send out a quick survey or just get a gut feeling with the team just by asking, how do we feel like we're doing on this? Um, and that's okay, too. CJ. Yeah. Surveys always make me smile when you're in a, if you're in too small of a team and you do a survey, you tend to get a little bit of a sanitized answer because if there's a kind of a free text box part of it, because everyone has a, it's easy to figure out who wrote it based on the comment that they gave. Um, but I like the, the net promoter uh, for the company <laughs> that Nigel kind of mentioned. Would you recommend this to a friend? Um, the, the other thing that I like to do, and it's it's harder to automate this, and it's a, a lot more time intensive, but I always try to get my key employees in a situation where we are somehow, whether it's a lunch or whether it's a walk or whether it's a somewhere outside of the physical office, not very formalized, like in a conference room where we're going to have a this very serious discussion across the table. But as part of a bigger conversation over the course of half an hour or an hour or so, try to not only check in with that person individually to see how they're doing kind of in a one-on-one -on -one, uh, meeting, but also start to ask them some questions around uh, parts of the culture that you're concerned about. And then when you take kind of the, the aggregate of those different answers, you can start to get an idea of, of how are people feeling. The other thing is try to, if you can, listen. Just take it. I remember at one point I had an office that was a little bit removed from the team that I was managing. And it drove me crazy because I couldn't, I couldn't overhear tone of voice and I couldn't see body language and how people were interacting and treating one another. I actually... Uh, jockeyed for a while and convinced someone to switch offices with me and came in on a Saturday and moved everything by myself so that it wouldn't be a disruption to anyone. 
just because I wanted to be closer to the team to be able to pick up on all of those uh, nonverbal signals and all of that um, kind of lower level communication. It's not like there's a specific incident, but just I need to take the temperature of, of how is everyone interacting. Makes sense. Thank you. Uh, John Snyder, you wanted to follow up? Yeah, and I think the key to Craig's question is the word intent. Craig, what are you intending on doing? Um, and if you have a question about that, maybe we can give you some specific measures that can help you measure whatever your intent is, because it depends on what you want. There you go. Next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana writes, In People Matters has an article that defines corporate culture in four words, creativity, collaboration, curation, and continuity. How do you respond to these buzzword definitions? Do they help convey core values? And then he has the Nigel. link. Nigel, how do you feel about it? Uh, no, they make me shudder. They make <laughs> me itch. Um, you know, you've got to be really careful doing culture stuff to a team using words and ideas that don't make sense to the team. Yeah, they may feel beautiful to you. They may look artistic and meaningful. But if people can't understand what you mean, and the, particularly the curation, is a very complicated... <laughs> it may be a behavior that you need to do, but it won't translate. And, and so I think one of the problems is people, people over-polish things like visions and missions and culture to get them perfect without letting them live and breathe a bit. So don't worry if the sentence is a bit long, if it feels a bit disjointed. Use it, say it out loud, discuss it, let, let it breathe for a while and it'll work its way through. But, but make sure it's things that make sense to people. So where I work, one of our culture things is we demonstrate passion. Passion for what we do, for how we do it. Because partly what we're doing is selling stuff to homeowners. And if we're not passionate about it, if we're not excited about it, they won't be excited about it. And so finding phrases and ideas that make sense to the people who are in the middle of your culture is more important than getting snappy one-liners off. But Nigel, passion doesn't start with a C, uh, CJ. <laughs> it definitely trying really hard to make everything start with a C here. Uh, I there's a, there's room for some other better words I think uh, how about you know integrity respect if if you're going to if you're going to tie yourself I mean really I think it's just someone really liked this uh, for the premise of an article and whenever you get into even publications like Harvard Business Review sometimes like the cover comes and you see the story on like embracing the power of generative AI or like what are you doing it's like this is it quickly devolves into this is the 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 tabloid that's at the grocery store checkout line where you're like, okay, you're trying to get me to buy this magazine. Uh, there's there's occasionally there's something that's really valuable there, but so much of the time it's just like, ah, okay, you wanted me to click on that. If you're once you really sit down and think about what are the core values of your business, not the outward looking mission statement necessarily, but what are really the things that you are unwilling to compromise on? That's what's driving the culture. It's not about, uh, I know I'm, I'm, I'm obsessing over these four C's, but <laughs> it's, it's what are the things that you hold the most dear? And, and that's, and, and when you, when you focus on those things every single day, uh, that's what, and it's never a big, uh, I, I guess, 
what I meant to say was it's never a, a big meeting or a big push or a big, uh, you know, summit where everybody sees a speaker that changes a culture. It's the little things that you're doing every single day that end up making the bigger impact and making the foundation. Another, uh, another Zig, a Zig Ziglar quote that I love is that uh, people say that motivation is only temporary, so it's not worth it. And he says, well, if motivation is temporary, I would say uh, so is bathing. So we recommend it daily. <laughs> I'm wondering why this person left out consistency, competence, compassion. There were so many other things that could have easily been shoehorned in there, and it would have been, yeah, we need seven things or 12 things. Just pull out the dictionary. Anyway. Next question. Penny Grizzle in Longview, Texas writes in, frankly, corporate culture determines who I want as employers and clients, even more than money. I feel and speak very highly of most companies I've ever worked with uh, or ever worked for. Others, I never mention. Has anyone ever cut ties due to culture? Nigel. Yeah, I've left companies because uh, the CEO or the senior leadership team has changed. And the culture that I was attracted to and part of what I thought I could be effective um, changed. And so I left. And and it's a very hard thing to do, by the way, but it's very important. Um, well, you can learn a lot of good stuff from a bad manager, mostly what not to do. It's really hard after a period of time to stay in that environment. So I definitely left a job. There was a senior leadership change that he wanted to change the way the company worked and I left. Yeah, my initial example here at the start of the show was I pleasantly and quietly said, sorry, I can't do it for the uh, slaughterhouse job. I just didn't want to go out and go to St. Louis and other places and stand on the floor of a line where they're cutting up meat. Just didn't want to do that. So at, at that point, I thought I will not be happy. Uh, you know, if it was critical for keeping my family fed, I probably would have had a different thing. But I was fortunate enough in that I had the option to say politely, no, thank you. I'll go find someplace else to peddle my wares. Jason? One of the most robust findings in psychology is that bad is stronger than good, meaning people will bend over backwards to avoid something bad, even if um, the reward that they're, that they're after is not necessarily worth what they're compromising. Take that to heart because it's just the opposite when you're involved with a toxic situation. It becomes a game of of inches. And if you're not compatible with the culture, um, the whatever's right outside that door may very well be your salvation. Let's go to the next question. Well said. Rob Collins in Kansas City, Missouri writes in, can you work on company culture when many are working from home now? Oh, that's an interesting question. CJ, what have you run into for remote workers? Whoops, you're muted, I think. I was fighting some mic sag. I didn't want it to come through the, the mic pad. Um, one thing that I'm really passionate about is how to create spaces for those serendipitous interactions to occur. And one of the challenges when you have remote workers is that you don't have people who are going to see each other by accident. Everything is done very, very intentionally. And when that happens, uh, I think there is, some, if you're not conscious about creating spaces for that accidental interaction to occur, then you can lose a little bit of that. So if you have, I have some companies that I work with that are 100% remote 
that make sure that once a month there's an opportunity for a very local group to come in. Once a quarter, there's a more regional get-together, and then once or twice a year, there's a whole company get-together where they're saying, okay, we're going to take a do an off-site and take most of the company onto a retreat because we're not spending all that money on corporate real estate. Therefore, I can afford to do something where the company goes off-site and has those little interactions. The other thing that I'm, I'm not sure exactly how to make it, but I think could be the a real silver bullet here is something like after hours where if you're available and you're in a big room and somebody can just come in and start talking and then other folks overhear it and start chiming in, if it's done with a certain degree of, uh, if you set up some decorum or you set up some level of respect that people understand what the rules of the game are, then you run into the option or then you run into the opportunity for two people that otherwise might not run into each other having a having that conversation that sparks something. But I know whenever I'm in the office, there are cert- there are people that I work with who will not talk to me until they see me. And that's a, that's a different issue. <laughs> It'd be nice if there's a little intentionality, but how do you recreate that? Uh, and that, that piece of your business during remote work is what uh, I think is your way to make sure that you're building culture, not just treading water. John Snyder. Yeah, I'm going to disagree a little bit with CJ here. I don't think there is a silver bullet because there are no werewolves in management. Um, Really, it's (laughs) culture is just about doing the right thing always. And that includes if you're an individual contributor, you have the opportunity to lead yourself, to live the kind of culture you want to replicate in the team, to treat your coworkers with respect, um, to make choices, to show up and how you how you appear when you show up to other people. As a manager, you have the opportunity to give feedback to your employees in everything they do, in the tone in the email they write, in how they're messaging each other in Teams or Slack or whatever. Um, You have the opportunity as a manager to form and shape your culture in every interaction. It might be harder when you're working from home or you might need to be more intentional about it, like CJ said, but that doesn't mean we're powerless. Interesting. Nigel? Yeah, to me, there are two sides of this. Uh, How do you work on culture when people are working remotely? And second, as a remote worker, how do you manage yourself into the culture? So so both are are very complicated, and, and I don't know we have enough experience yet, mostly to know how to do that. But it does come down to management. Remote working is really not about the remote worker, it's about the manager, and whether they're able to set objectives and to know that the work is being done. Um, and so so if that's not clear, if there aren't good metrics, then that's when people start imagining somebody's got two jobs, they're working three hours, they're work, you know, that that's when things go wrong because there aren't really clear metrics of, of what the person is expected to achieve and when they're meant to achieve it by in whatever context of what they do. Um, in terms of the, the employer, the other side, uh, it is very hard, and there's a question coming up next about return to office, it is very hard to be part of a company when you work remote, unless the culture of that company is a remote culture work. It's like if you have a distributed set of managers who work in a distributed way and the systems are set up to survive that and work out how to flourish it, then it'll be easier to be part of that culture. If you have a very centralized management where decisions are made you know, on the on the floor that, that has the nice carpet, it's really hard to influence that 
when you don't ever walk down that carpet. Hmm. CJ. Last thing I'll mention is something that is near and dear to everybody's hearts here, and that's how you look and sound is going to, if, if you set the expectation as a manager that people are going to look and sound a certain way, and when you send your a remote worker, or when you bring on a remote worker, you send them a camera that produces a good picture and set the expectation that this is how people need to sound and give them an opportunity even to practice. Hey, if you need help, I know it's 2023 and the biggest outcome of COVID was that everybody knows how to use Zoom, we think. But give them an opportunity to test the setup, to test your microphone, to test your camera. If you're not, If you're in a dark room... Offer to send them a $100 one-by-one light with a softbox can do amazing things to be a a virtual window. But if you're going to have a dedicated space for your office, make sure that it looks and sounds good because that just that makes you better in meetings. You feel better as you're presenting and it takes some of the friction or some of the um, Things that we lost by going to low-quality cameras and low-quality lighting, all of the nonverbal communication, all of those intangibles that we felt like we lost, we get a lot of them back when we can actually see the person on the other side of the screen and all of the little things. Hmm, interesting. Um, I don't know why, but I thought about that when we were first talking But this part of the discussion. I was thinking to myself, um, I, I resonated with what John said in the beginning of this about uh, just being positive and nice and good. It's, it, it wasn't what he was saying, but he was saying, you know, do the right thing. And I don't know why, but it triggered me, is there writer things? And how do we, do we have any kind of mechanism for helping people improve from that baseline of just do the right thing? It, you know, how do you determine, is there a sharper or better or more consistent or more effective way to arise out of that base level of do the right thing, and how do you motivate people remotely to keep doing what they would do if they were in the office, which is, oh, I've got this idea, I can go talk to that person, and maybe we can do some collaboration or whatever. That stuff is cut off. But that would be one of the strategies that I might have used in the office to try to Im improve my uh, my uh, what the what my team thought about my competence or whatever. It's, it was just, it came into my mind. It's, it's very ill-formed, as you can tell from me babbling about it. But it's just something to think about. How do, how do you get people off of mediocre and up to the next level? And I see, John, you popped in there. Yeah, for me personally, um, if someone's generally doing the right thing, if there's a better way to do it, I typically will not give them um, instructive feedback on that unless they want to grow in that area of their career. If someone does good enough, Sometimes that's good enough, and I don't have to nitpick every single thing, especially if they're doing something good. Yeah. Okay. That 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 actually resonates me resonates for me too. You know, some people do. Some people do want to just spend their career where they are, and they're happy, and it's fitting into their lives, and they don't always want to climb the corporate ladder. That may be something that another person would think about. Somebody else just wants this to be the best experience that's consistent about what they're doing already. And, and good managers always understand multiple things like that. CJ. The other thing that you can do to keep uh, in, keep inspiring people or, or, or motivating them towards doing the right thing and towards doing what's the right thing for, for them and for the business is to not only understand as a manager what are your goals 
What are your one, three, five-year plans in terms of the trajectory that you're trying to put your organization on? But also, what are the one, three, five-year trajectory plans that this individual has? What does that individual contributor, what does that employee see themselves being going down the road? And when, the, when, that empl- when you understand what is motivating or what is driving that employee, what are they working towards, you as a manager can start to mold your team so that where you want to go and where they want to go align. And now you're, uh, now you're, you're mot- you can use those motivations to help drive them to say, this is how you're making uh, the, the good decision, not the one that is uh, just in self-interest. Nigel? Yeah, I want to build on what CJ just said, because I think it's very important that when, you, when you're with, particularly in a large organization, you have employees, having a conversation about them about where you want to be. Sometimes when I mentor people, I start with, where do you want to be when you retire? Which blows the top of their head off. But, but again, if you don't know what direction you're going, it doesn't matter which way you go. So at some point, you have to have a sense in your career about the destination. And then think of, you know, I would encourage employees to think of their career like a video game, that at every level, you've got to pick up a set of skills and relationships and network and capabilities before you succeed at the next level, before you can get through the next level. And so having a talk about those, what are those things that in this job, you can learn, experience, network, do all of those things before you get to the next job is an important way to work out not only what the right thing to do is, but what the best things to do are. Nice. Let's go to the next question. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania writes in, what types of principles are unique to a particular industry versus cultural principles universally valuable to every work environment? John, start us off. Uh, most industries would consider things like integrity, performance, uh, politeness or service as generally good principles. Um, some industries would weigh them differently. Uh, for example, a sales organization would probably lean more on the uh, performance side or the, the revenue side of things than the customer service team might. Uh, but there's also industries that are specific, like in rocket science, I'm imagining precision is a much more valuable trait and principle than it is um in, I don't know, um, retail. Yeah. You don't have to be precise about getting the ice cream cone perfect that you're selling to somebody across the counter at an ice cream shop, but rocket science, probably so. Nigel? Yeah, I thought that example was very good. I think precision is obviously, you know, um, something very important. I remember we used, when we talked earlier about meantime between failure, you know, there was the question of if you're building power supplies, then you know, 99.99999% is very important because you don't don't want to kill one in every thousand clients. Um, whereas if you're you know doing ice cream, getting it exactly in the cone may not be as important. Um, the reality is, I I think there aren't industry specific ones that are obvious. I think precision was a really good example. To me, it's the sequence in which they're important. You'll find some are more important. There will you can have fifty elements of your culture. But you can't communicate all 50. Nobody can consume them. So narrowing them down, combining them, selecting the ones you want to drive on are probably more relevant to the industry and the culture you're trying to create rather than being complete. Makes sense. Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, do you think return to office has the positive effect on culture that its proponents say it does? CJ, start us off. Well, that's a, that's a tough one. Uh, because depending on your industry and depending on how your company's set up, uh, return to office can be 
really dramatic. And we've seen uh, uh, really, I should almost not say traumatic, but it, it's a big shift in how employees are working on a day-to-day basis. And we're seeing this with reports out of Silicon Valley or out of other tech companies where uh, a company takes a hardline stance on return to office and some of their best and brightest say, no, that's okay. Uh, but if your company isn't set up with a remote culture, there's there are definite benefits to everyone physically being in the same place. So it really uh, it really depends on your specific organization on whether that's whether that's working or not. Nigel, uh, no is the answer to this question. Um, I, w- I want to frame this slightly differently. Uh, somebody mentioned earlier work life balance. I don't believe there's any such thing as work-life balance. I think it's a myth created by HR departments to make people feel better. I think the only thing that exists is work-life choices. I think every decision you make is a choice, whether you want to spend more time with your family or more time with your career. These are choices. These are not, There's no such thing as balance. I think it's a myth. Um, I would tell you working from home, if you have an option, to work from home or work from the office is a choice. You are making a choice. If you are early in your career, I believe unless the culture of that company is absolutely distributed, you will damage your ability to exceed. The people that will do better than you are the people that demonstrate hunger. And it's really hard to demonstrate hunger in a a corporate culture on a Zoom call. You have to be in the room. You have to be in the flow, as they say. Now, if you're at the top of your career and you're already the best at what you do or you have unique capabilities, then they will come to you. But that's because they need you more than you need them. I, I know there's a desire to work from home. I think there's a, a lot of uh, fun stories of people who've left. If you're at the start of your career, you are making choices. You're making choices about where you're going to end up. Be very careful. John? I would just add that one of the biggest factors as to what happens to the culture when people come back is what are especially the frontline managers doing. If you have supervisors or mid-level managers complaining about coming back to work, it's not going to help your culture at all. Um, If you have people promoting it and demonstrating how returning to the office is impacting in a positive way, it might help the culture. It depends a lot on the people involved. I also wonder, and this is just me personally, if entropy, if the, the idea that Corporate executives for decades have had one way to manage, and it was, you know, he had all these management by wandering around and things like that that were based on office topologies and things like that. I wonder if they just, you know, it was only two or three years that we got this kind of disruption. I wonder if the skills at the top in terms of maximizing the potential of remote kind of fell by the wayside during COVID and the rest of that, and instead of really exploring and working really hard at how to find the kinds of employees who could thrive in a work-from-home environment and be happier in the long run and stick around longer versus those who would not and would never do really well in anything other. It's just purely, again, speculative on my part, but I thought about it a little bit during the midst of the pandemic going... It's going to separate people to a certain degree, those who can and those who can't. And they're going to have different roles going forward. I think that's very much what we've been talking about here. It'll be interesting to see how it all shakes off over the next 10 years. Next question. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania writes in, what potential value might be gained by collecting an exit survey from former employees after they have left the organization? Nigel? 
there are two things people don't want to do. One is loss reviews and the other is exit reviews because they don't want to hear what's got to be said. Uh, you need to do them. You need to do them. You need to make sure the person doing the exit review is someone who's seen as impartial and that the manager who you're leaving is a very poor person to do the exit review because most employers will not be honest and not be clear. This is a great job for HR and outside consulting. Somebody else other than or even a peer, if that's the only thing you can get to. But exit reviews are very good. Just remember, one exit review is not a trend. Two is not a trend. Five or six saying the same thing is a trend. Uh, again, there are many ways to listen to exit reviews. It's a very good one. John Snyder. I could have said it better, Nigel. Take it with a grain of salt, the results, and also check for trends and patterns just like any data. Next question. Rosto Jones in Madison, Indiana writes in, is it okay if a smaller business has the personality of the owner or should it be, try to formalize a culture separate from the owner's personality? Oh, cult of personality stuff, Nigel. I think in very small companies, uh, and we're talking less than uh, five or 10 employees, um, if they are owned by a sole proprietor or a partnership or, or a small number of people, they will, the, the, the company will take on the culture of the owner. One of the things that we do is, is buy small, small companies in the industry we're in. And we are very sensitive to how does that owner operate? How have they set up? And what we find is there are lots of different types of owners. Uh, in our industry, at least, there's the owner that sells the dream and then someone sends someone in behind them to clean up the work and make the sale. And there are some owners that make the sale themselves and do the detail. How they work fundamentally changes the way the company works. And that if you go work in that environment, you need to understand that's how they work, that's how people are successful. And if you don't like that culture, you won't be successful in it. You won't change that because it's designed around the person that owns the company. John? Generally speaking, the data indicates that high-performing teams are more diverse. And so just be careful if you're replicating a single person, a single person's vision. We're all prone to like people who are like us and prefer people who are like us. It becomes a major problem in, in hiring and retaining talent as well as the long-term performance of a business. CJ? Another thing that I think is important, especially if you have a strong personality, is that to embrace feedback that is say, that is to the contrary of what your personality is. Somebody might have something to contribute. But also make sure that you're hiring people who are strong where you are not strong. As you build a team around you, you'll find that uh, if you keep hiring a bunch of people that perfectly align with your personality or perfectly align with the owner's personality, you don't get a lot of that uh, you don't get a lot of that back and forth and a lot of that disagreement. And then, and what comes out of that, a uh, kind of that debate, that back and forth can be really powerful. We have a last question real quick here. Adrian Watkins in Wellington, New Zealand writes in, how do you understand and manage indigenous cultural differences across geodiverse organizations? Jason, you want to take a swing at it? Um, I think the first thing that you do is you recognize that you can't understand everything. And, and that, that is in many ways a really, really critical step. And, you know, once you've recognized the, the gap, start to figure out how to fill it in. I'll let Nigel take it from here. Nigel? Very carefully is the answer. Um, 
you know, it's quite interesting. I, I used I used to send uh, U.S. managers to go do presentations in Europe, and almost every country in Europe responds differently in a meeting and what a meeting is for. And so I think it's very important that you, that you learn to ask questions of the team. What will make this most effective? How will this work? Don't assume what works for you in terms of meetings and work style will work for them, and you won't know unless you ask. There you go. Tomorrow, our Apple event breakdown. Alex is really high on this. He was really fascinated. This is the first time that Apple has ever shot an entire keynote that one of the arguably their biggest public relations forward facing client facing things on iPhones. And so we are going to break down in detail exactly how it worked, where it might have fallen short, where it was a plus. Uh, and we're going to be looking at things like the hardware rigs that they use and things like that. So if you're fascinated with uh, high, high, high level corporate communications and the possibility of using very much less expensive uh, devices than we used in the past to do them, tomorrow's your day. Thanks for watching. I thank everybody, all of our panelists who come in and give our expertise. A day like today, there's no way it would work without people like we have on the panel that you're seeing right here. So thank you, one and all, everybody who came on the panel today. This was a huge plus for everybody watching, and, and I appreciate it because this is not my strongest suit. And so without you guys, I would have uh, would have had a tougher time. So thank you very much for all of that. Um, the people who asked the questions, again, I, I was worried there a couple of times that we didn't have a ton of questions. But as always, you pulled it off magnificently. So thank you for all the questions that you asked. And to our fabulous back-end crew, the people who are pushing the buttons all around the world, tied together in this virtual web that we call Office Hours that assembles every day. We will be back to do it again tomorrow. And there's always after hours between there if you'd like to ask questions and talk to each other. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you tomorrow. That was a great culture for scale. I got to go find a script to read that should have gone to James Earl Jones. Just <laughs> cold voice. I like this new octave, Bill. It's nice. Get the garbage uh, can. Yeah. Luke, I am your father. I got to figure out how to bring it back on demand CNN. <laughs> That's right. Do all your sounders right now. Right. Yeah. I wish I had 30 scripts waiting. I could go in and find the parts yeah. that needed a... Basso Profundo Wizard and just do them all at once. Thanks for being here, everybody. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Courtney. See you later. I'm Bye. off Good to, to hire you, some middle. I'm off to uh, fire some middle level managers now. <laughs> <laughs> you have the skills. Go fire a consultant. <laughs> well, you got to hire a consultant. Then it's nobody's fault when it goes wrong. Well, yeah, exactly. That's right. The insurance policy. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. See you.